And Newton's uh, third law of motion, for every action there is an opposite but equal reaction. And while he had physics in mind, I think there's an illustration of that toward the person and work of Jesus Christ. When Jesus Christ comes into a person's life, when he comes on the scene, there are one or two reactions. Either we oppose him or we welcome him. We've seen this from the beginning of the gospel accounts when Christ is born. Either they're trying to kill him, find him to kill him, or to find him to worship him. And while it's, it's binary, and it may seem a little hard because we don't think about gray area very often, uh, there really are only two responses to the person and work of Jesus Christ. Do we embrace him? Do we believe him? Do we accept him? Or do we oppose him? And there's no neutral zone. There's no neutrality when it comes to him. If you're not embracing him, you are, by fact, opposing him. That's hard. It's a hard idea for a culture that's become individualized. Social media has developed platforms that have made the individual their own god. In the attempt to find our voice, in the attempt to have an opinion, in the attempt to say what we think and that our voice and view and pictures matter, social media has exploited this concept into a place where everybody's equal. And while there's some good and great benefit from that, when you look at what's happened to us culturally as a Western group of Americans, uh, our thinking has changed. We're now entering a new chapter, I would argue, of a totalitarian viewpoint that is up against the individual. In other words, who's right? And what we're seeing in our culture today with riots in the street, even in our political arena, we're seeing this idea of individuality being worshipped over against, is there a corporate good? And what happens with the corporate good is it becomes totalitarian. It becomes authoritative. The individual then emboldens him or herself, and they become, in their own disorganized way, a group as well. To peel it back a little bit, to make it a little more simple, perhaps, is does my opinion about God matter? Or am I aligned to what God says about himself? When Christ comes on the scene, people are going to oppose him. As, as Lloyd mentioned last week, this is the opposition section in the Gospel of Mark. There are five different stories that Mark records in his shorter, in his more compact, a more difficult Gospel than Luke and Matthew, the other synoptics, and completely different, of course, than the Gospel of John. If you have your Bible open to Mark chapter 2, and let me give you a high view of where we have been, where we're going. Uh, first, he healed the paralytic. And when he healed the paralytic, there was an amazing response. Then he eats with sinners. And when he does this, this is the first uh, vocal opposition we read in the Gospel of Mark. Then we're going to see him ignore fasting regulations as the scribes and disciples of John view. Then he's going to be uh, called on account for his disciples picking grain and eating them on Sabbath. And then the second Sabbath violation is going to be healing on Sabbath. So these are the five opposition stories that Mark puts in his gospel. Now for those of you who are Bible study fellowship or precept students or just diligent Bible study folks, I want to explain very quickly what you're seeing here from a structure standpoint. We've talked about chiasms before. A, A prime, B, B prime, in this case C. So A and A prime are a reflection, B and B prime are a reflection, C in this case is the point or the middle of the story. So just a high view of that. In chapter uh, 2, the first 12 verses, it was opposition to the paralytic's healing. 
The key verbs in that passage were getting up, picking up, moving out, being well. And the response is they're amazed. But if you look at what we'll call a prime, the second part of this, in chapter 3 we're going to look at today, the opposition there is healing of a man with a withered hand. So he healed a paralytic, and now he's, now he's going to heal a man on Sabbath in a synagogue with a withered hand. So he got the AA prime healing stories at parallel. We also see the verb forms. It's get up. It's come forward. And so these verb forms, Mark, they're not just action stories. He's using theological terms to make a point. God is the one who can raise people up. God is the one who can pull them to himself. And of course, by this time in the story, A, the opposition is more amazement. A prime, they want to kill him. Well, if you look at B, it would be the opposition of eating with sinners. And that's going to be in chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. The scribes are going to say, why is he eating with tax collectors and sinners? And the key term there is the concept of sinner. And that he didn't come as a physician to the well because they don't need a physician. He comes as a physician to the sick. And then the parallel, again, is going to be eating. Here it's eating grain. And it's in chapter 2, 23 to 28. So he's eating with sinners. Now his disciples are eating grain. So both these are parallel stories in the, in the structure. And again, they're going to argue that he's violating Sabbath. The middle of all this is C, AA prime, BB prime, C. C is chapter 2, verses 18 to 22, which we'll look at today. And this is the opposition about his fasting. And the point in the middle is he's going to elude, and we might say very clearly articulate, that he's going to die. So opposition, opposition uh, by, by his, what he heals, what he eats, and then they're going to kill him. And so this structure in Mark, we can call it a Mark and Sandwich if you want. He does a lot of them. They're hard to show in a quick survey. But again, for you who read and study the Bible, I'd encourage you to look for these, these comparisons and contrasts as you read through the Scripture. And it will open up expansively as you understand what the Word is accomplishing in our lives. Well, let's look at the bridegroom and the new wine. Chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. Mark chapter 2, beginning at verse 18. John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, While the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But, when they, but the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost, and the skins as well. But one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. John's disciples and the Pharisees are aligning on this particular opposition about fasting and the obligations of fasting. Now, Old Testament had one law of fasting, and that was during the Day of Atonement in Leviticus chapter 16. It was the only time God commanded they fast. There were times of fasting for mourning or for repentance that we see through the Scripture. In Matthew 6, Jesus explains how and why, when you give, when you pray, when you fast. And what he's saying there is if you want to practice righteousness, 
If you want to be a righteous person, you pray, you give, and you fast in secret. Because it's a matter of the heart. He says, wash your face. Don't look like you're fasting. Don't, don't tell people you're fasting all week for some cause. Uh, you're doing this for your righteousness between you and God. It's a heart matter. So we do have fasting not as a command, not as part of a law, but we do have fasting for mourning or repentance. Fasting as a religious practice became a legalistic form for the scribes and Pharisees. Uh, the document known as the Mishnah, which is accumulated much later, are what the rabbis said about law, and there were always questions about what does this mean? Even in my reading in, uh, through Numbers, there are situations that they come to Moses and they say, what do we do here? And Moses talks to the Lord and the Lord tells them they're right and what they're thinking. So we see this expansion of interpreting the law. But after that happens, what ha how, how do we follow it? Well, the scribes and Pharisees created these documents. There were 39 categories of when you were supposed to fast and all sorts of other uh, nuances that the rabbis continue to add. So they're practicing a religious system that has been built over the years, and it's not in keeping with specific Old Testament law. Well, Jesus explains the incongruity of fasting at a time of celebration. It's a wedding, for goodness sakes. It's a celebration. You don't fast at a celebration. Donald Gray Barnhouse notes, performing outward religious rituals bear no relationship to what is in the heart that cuts religious formalism to the very roots we're not looking for some outward practice of legalism of do's and don'ts to make us look spiritual and so the heart of the matter here jesus says it's incongruous for you to fast while the bridegroom is present now these attendants are going to share in the joy of their groom of the bride and so it would be inappropriate for them to fast. But Jesus says as long as they have the bridegroom and when the bridegroom is taken away. And again, it's a veiled reference to his time on earth. will be very short now. He, again, he's approximately 30-ish when the book of Mark starts, and he'll be crucified. So it's a very quick look at the three years of his life's ministry. The death and the tragic events of fasting will be appropriate in that day. And then he uses two illustrations, and I think it's fair to call it parable language. He uses two parables to explain what this means, uh, why you don't fast. The first one is the old cloth on, uh, torn with a new patch or an old wineskin filled with new wine. The parabolic teaching in the Bible is always something that everybody gets. You don't have to explain this too hard. If we say the traffic in Nashville is getting worse, we go, yeah, we understand what that means. It needs no explanation unless you never leave the house, right? It needs no explanation. And we say it's, it's a, it you know, falls upon us, our favorite time of year. Everybody knows what that means. When Jesus uses these two illustrations, it's something they all understood. So garments, when you know, any of you have, have boys, uh, the knees in blue jeans blow out in like three days, right? I mean, they blow out. And if you've got an old pair of jeans that got lots, of course, I guess it's fashionable now to have them blown out. But anyway, uh, if you take a new patch and sew it on there, you know exactly what happens. You wash it and it pulls away. The same is true with a wineskin. A wineskin has some elasticity as more than likely a tanned goat hide that's used a special way and processed a special way, not to ruin the wine. So it's used once. 
So the, the fermented grape juice is introduced into there, and then it's kept, and it continues to ferment and expand. The bacterial gases expand it, and so after the, the elasticity of that skin has been used up and you've drunk the wine out of it, you don't put new wine in it again because you'll ruin the wine skin, you'll break the wine skin, and you'll lose the wine that you would have otherwise had. Both very simple illustrations. Now, John's disciples, we need to take a little sidebar here for you careful readers. Why are they aligning with the Pharisees? John's disciples are a unique group of people that we read about in the Gospels. They follow John the Baptist before Jesus comes on the scene. Sometimes they're called the ascetic community. Uh, it's a fair term, but we need to be careful with what it means. John lived out in the wilderness, so he attracted a different kind of disciple. And if you go to Israel, because it is God's will, uh, we'll take you to the, uh, the area called where, where the, the Dead Sea Scrolls are found, out in Gedi. We'll take you there and show you where the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, and you'll see this is the Essene type of community. We don't know for sure if John's disciples lived there, but it's probably a 10 or 15% likelihood. More importantly, it gives you an idea of what it was like to live an ascetic lifestyle. And so in this area, we talk about John's disciples and how they lived. Now, You'll remember later in the storyline, John will send his disciples while he's in prison to go ask Jesus, are you the one? Are you really the one? Are we to look for somebody else? And Jesus tells his disciples, go and tell John a list of things. In other words, I'm the one. But John didn't see it the same way Jesus' disciples saw it. I've used the mountain illustration before. So we've got a mountain here, and John and John's disciples said, the Messiah is going to come. What they didn't realize is there's another peak over here, and all this has got to happen after his death, burial, resurrection. They thought the Messiah was going to come and solve everything. They missed, they missed the point. So John's disciples are following John and Jesus, and they're going, wait a minute, they don't fast. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they're going to align with the Pharisees on this one until they find out, of course, what Jesus is doing. And John's disciples unfold in the traditions as they come well, the point is the new overcomes the legalism of the old. That's the point of all this. The new, Jesus Christ, overcomes the legalism of the old. The new has come, the old is passing away. Christ did not abolish the law, he fulfills the law. Well, the Sabbath rules and regulations, verse 23, chapter 2, 23 to 28. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath. And his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on Sabbath? And they said to him, have you never read that Dave, what David did when he was in need and he and his companions became hungry? How they entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Jesus Christ is now introducing these Sabbath rules and regulations that are going to upset the apple cart. The law was made in a provision so that you could pluck your neighbor's grain. In Deuteronomy chapter 23, 25, uh, you could go through. You couldn't take a sickle, but if you're walking along the road and the grain is full, you had full rights to take whatever you could eat. Think of it like an all-you-can-eat buffet. You can't take it home, 
but you can eat as much as you want while you're there. And it's a lot of labor to take a little grain and do this, and it, it's grain. It hasn't been roasted or cooked, or it's grain, and to, to munch on that hard grain, but that's what they were allowed to do. There were laws in the Old Testament that provided for gleaning laws. We know the story of Ruth. You can go and glean, you can eat what you can take. Even today in some of the areas of Israel, if we go to Jaffa and the oranges happen to be in season, you can go over and take an orange and eat it right there. No one's going to give you any trouble because there's this kind of hang-on to the, the Old Testament law. Now, you can't take bushels of them, but you can take one, you can eat it, and nobody's going to give you any trouble. So the law had that provision. At the same time, the law had a prohibition against working on Sabbath, Exodus chapter 34, 21. They weren't to work even during plow time. They weren't to work even during harvest. Now, I spent a little time in East Texas around people that had crops, and, and uh, there, there's a time frame, and if it rains while those crops need to be picked, it's a real problem. It's going to ruin their crop. So they'll work 24-7 you know, to get the crop in. The law had a provision that even when it was plow time and harvest, you don't work on Shabbat. You trust God, you trust Yahweh, and you obey the law, and you don't work on the Sabbath. So those are the bookends. Now David goes in to the, uh, take the holy bread that only Aaron and the Levitical priest who were designed to do this could go in. There was a special ritual about how they baked the bread. It was on a, a table. The loaves were like a flat thing of a flat, kind of a pita type thing. And uh, at the end of the week, they were to eat those and replenish them. Only the priest could touch them. Only the priest could handle If you come from a Catholic background, this is where some of the, the uh, idea comes from about who handles the bread and so forth. Only the priest could do that. But this was a precedence. And it had to sting a little bit when he says to them, uh, don't you know, haven't you read the story about David? I mean, these are the scribes and Pharisees. Don't you know that David and his men went in there and ate that holy bread? And what is he saying? The burden of the law was not meant to take precedence over life. In fact, what he's saying is life takes precedence over law. And so David and his men were in their rights to do this. It adds to the burden of the law for the legalist. Jesus says, no, I'm looking at the heart of the law and what God intended for man. Well, Jesus explains the Sabbath, and I'm going to read it again, verse 27. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Two points. Number one, God made Sabbath. This may be a re seem redundant for me to, to explain. God was the one who made Sabbath. It was for man. It was a reward for man. It was, you work six days, but you take a day off. It wasn't to do nothing. It was to worship God and enjoy family and fellowship. In antiquity, uh, we, we think about preparing a meal. I mean, some of you are, are chefs and you, you spend maybe 45 minutes, an hour preparing a meal. Most people like to cook a meal in as little time as possible today. I mean, the shorter, the quicker, the better, the faster. The more processed food, the more prepared food, drive-through, fat. We don't want to spend hours in the kitchen. Antiquity, there was no option. You spend hours preparing a meal. Think of how often it goes, go run and make bread. Think about that. Go run and make some bread. How long would that take in antiquity to build a fire, to, to, to deal with the, the grain? And even if it was unleavened bread, how long it would take to bake that bread? Go slay an animal and let's eat. 
If you've not ever been to a barbecue where they take a live animal and go to the process, it takes hours to do that. So Sabbath was freeing them up with an incredible freedom of schedule. It, they, especially women, they had the day off. And they spent time as a family, spent time worshiping. They did things that were not the norm. Sabbath was made for man. Again, the Mishnah has all these burdens of what you can and can't do on Shabbat. Secondly, he says the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. So now he's telling them he's God. God made Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord over that Sabbath. He's the sovereign who gave it to man as a gift. Sharon Dowd observes it this way. A major premise. Sabbath was made by God for man. Minor premise. The Son of Man came to serve man. Conclusion, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, and he has the authority to serve man. It's a beautiful line. Listen again. Her first premise, Sabbath was made by God for man. The minor premise, the Son of God, Man came to serve man. Conclusion, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, therefore he came to serve human need, which was more than just a meal. By the way, you probably know this already, but there's Ten Commandments, right? The Decalogue. All but one are repeated explicitly or implicitly in your New Testament. All but one. Sabbath. It's no longer a command in the way it was in the Old Testament for the Jew. It's a freedom. And here's the, here's the interesting thing about Shabbat or Sabbath. We view, uh, some of us grew up when, you know, blue laws, Everything was closed on Sundays. Uh, I remember growing up in Texas, and everything except the movie theater and small parts of the grocery store were closed. They had these ropes when you went to the grocery store. You couldn't go down certain aisles and buy certain things. You could only buy like eggs and milk and certain perishables on Sunday. And they had shorter hours. Banks, of course, still follow. They have some common sense to close on Sundays. But in the old, in, in just in my lifetime, very little was open on Sunday. Well, we've changed because we're making the shekel bigger and the bushel smaller. But uh, that's just our economy. But is the point not working? Here's the point of Sabbath. God gives you a gift and says, take a day off and do what you don't normally do. You're more efficient taking a day off than you're working seven days in a row. I can get so much more done. Just as the farmer in antiquity would look at his crops and the rain came, i got to get those crops in. They're going to rot. It was a statement, do I trust God that taking a day off is better even when it looks like I should be working today? Now you're going to take a day off and just read the Bible all day and go to church all day and is that Sabbath? No. Sabbath is a rest from what you normally do. You have time and freedom to spend with God, absolutely. And we need to take that opportunity because we're not pressured and stressed to go to work. So maybe you should read a little longer. Maybe you should you know, spend a little time in prayer. Maybe you should walk around the neighborhood and just thank God for the list of things that come to your mind. But taking a Sabbath rest is saying, I trust God will care for me as I work more than I need to do all this myself because there's a lot of work to get done. It will always be there Monday. It never stops. There are days I do not look at the email. I just don't look at it at all. That to me is a rest from work. And you know what? House didn't burn down. The world didn't stop. Everything was fine the next day when I caught up with it. It's a statement of, it's a gift of God that he gives us.
Well, healing on the Sabbath, our final section in chapter 3, verses 1 to 6. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, Get up and come forward. And he said to them, Is it lawful to do good or to do harm on Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved in at the hardness of their heart, he said to them, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately, and they began to conspire with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Now, if we were to look at Matthew and Luke, the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, we look at them all about this story, we do know that um, this is probably Capernaum. We can't be sure. Probably a week or more has passed since the last story in Mark. It wasn't the same day. So he's at a different synagogue, perhaps back home at Capernaum. A number of features in the story I want you to see is they're watching him to see whether or not he would heal on Sabbath. We've already had this bookend story where he's healed the man, the paralytic. And now as Mark's gospel is organizing, now he's going to hear somebody on Sabbath. Um, we've got to see a sense of humor here. The pious Jews are coming to Sabbath not to worship Yahweh, but to catch Jesus. Think about the religious leaders of the day are coming on the scene to see what he's going to do. Now, this was their day of worship. This was Sabbath by, uh, in the synagogue. And so they should have come to worship. Uh, forget the healing and the benefit power, the, power, the benefits Jesus would bring them was power. They're looking for an opportunity to discredit him. Forget the guy who's, who's got an illness, he's getting help. We have to stop this guy. Why? Because they're opposed to him. He threatens everything they stand for. And they've got to catch him and get rid of him. The Pharisees understood that healing was permitted on Sabbath if it was life and death. So if you want to really parse their argument, what they're saying is, you could have healed that guy's withered hand on Sunday, because for the Jew, Sabbath was Friday night to Saturday night. So this was Saturday more than likely, the way we count days. You could have done it, we'd say, you could have done it tomorrow. This wasn't life or death. That would be their argument. And so Jesus is going to explain to them, uh, sure, that's true, but there's some features of the story that sort of jump over their parsing of the law. Don't forget, Sabbath violations meant the death penalty. Exodus chapter 34, verses 14 and following. A poor guy's picking up sticks. And it's found out, and they tell Moses, and God says, take him out of the camp, and all the congregation stone him with stones for picking up sticks. That's really what you're going to kill a guy for? No, because God said it's a holy day and you don't work on that one day. God's holy, that was the issue. The New Testament, he's saying, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. This isn't about picking up sticks. I've come, I made it, I'm here. I haven't repeated it as a command in the New Testament because it's a gift to you as I am a gift to you. I'm coming to serve you, Jesus is saying. I want you to notice in the story, too, Jesus takes the initiative. Remember with the paralytic, you got the four MacGyver guys who are climbing on the roof, moving the tiles away, dropping the, all the debris falling in the house, a comical scene, and he heals the guy with no negotiation, no discussion. Pick up your pallet and get out of here. Now we have an even more removed story. The guy just comes to the synagogue. 
I don't think that guy that morning got up on Shabbat and said, let's go to the synagogue of Capernaum and maybe Jesus will heal my withered hand. I doubt that was anywhere in his imagination. The story doesn't tell us. We know nothing about this guy. That's even more intriguing. He's an object lesson. And Jesus tells him, get up and come forward. Maybe that's where we get the walk the aisle idea. I don't know. Get up and come forward. Obviously, everyone can see him in the synagogue. Obviously, the Pharisees are there to see what he's going to do. They keep silent. German theologian Edward Lozier writes, the high point of the incident lies less in the act of healing than the conflict between Jesus and his adversaries, in which they are now silent before his sovereign word. Now, the glimpse into the exact reference here is interesting. This is the only time in the New Testament Jesus is angry. The table turning is a little different set of words. Here he's angry, but notice He's angry, and he's also grieved at the hardness of their heart in verse 5. So the combination of Messiah, the sovereign God-man, being angry but grieved at how hard they are in their heart. I want you to notice also when he says, stretch out your hands, he hasn't touched the guy. He hasn't lifted anything up. He's not violated Sabbath. He's not done any work. He just says, put your hand out. So you could argue from Jesus' standpoint, I didn't do any work at all. I just told the guy to lift his arm. There's no stipulation in the law anywhere that says don't tell somebody to do something on Sabbath. So he's, he's completely innocent of the highest view of the law, but they're going to say he healed, and it's a violation to heal. It's working on Sabbath. Religious leaders are not interested in who Jesus is or what he can do. The religious leaders are interested in one thing. Their position, their power, their political structure is being threatened, and they now have to kill him. The irony, they don't work or heal on Sabbath. They plot to kill him on Sabbath, which is a more egregious idea. To go in to worship God on Sabbath or to go in to plot murder on Sabbath. Well, verse 6 is a summary and transition for the storyline. The Pharisees went out and immediately, Luke's favorite word, Mark's favorite word, began to conspiring with the Herodians. Um, these five oppositions have now come to a climax in the story of, Ma- of Mark's gospel. This is the first very explicit reference of the death of Jesus Christ. Pharisees are going to try to kill him. Uh, the Herodians would align under Herod Antipas, just a little detail here. Uh, there are several Herods. It's a little bit hard to keep up with them, but Herod Antipas is the one who's alive at this time. And so the Herodians are in league with the Pharisees on this one. So again, the Pharisees who live in this tenuous situation of having social, political power and position because the Romans let them under Herod, and so they're going into their synagogue doing their thing. They go to Rome to kill Jesus. So again, we see the enemy of my enemy playing out here. The point of the story is they've decided to kill him. A number of lessons and so what's, I would just distill it down to a couple of things. Number one, legalism never works. Legalism never works. A system of do's and don'ts can never accomplish anything good. Uh, We have them in our hearts. Some of us were raised in a system that is legalistic. As we get older, we begin to understand that. We want to be careful we don't go from legalism to licentiousness. Legalism, liberty, we don't take liberty too far and do whatever we want and call it okay. 
So liberty is the freedom we have in Christ, the freedom we have that Sabbath isn't a law. Sabbath is a gift to take a rest, to take a break. Um, the problem here, and I think we can distill it down very simply, that it always has been and always will be a work of God that saves man, not a work of man. It always has been and always will be God's work that saves us. We bring nothing to the party. We contribute nothing to our salvation. We respond by faith. And we can demonstrate pretty well through Scripture that he gives us the faith to respond as called and chosen children of his. We don't do anything but embrace what he offers us. So you either embrace or you oppose. The only options were given. And this part of Mark's gospel is setting that thing up. Now, we're back into a context of a Western mindset here in 2016 with an upcoming election, and we're seeing individualism at an all-time high, in my opinion. It's all about me. I remember 10 years ago, I used, to com I used to make the comment that personal rights are the little gods of the day. My personal rights are my little god of the day and the idols that I worship. I have right, my right to do this. My right to do. Uh, now they're major gods. And individualism has become a god. What I think, what I want. What, I mean, those of you who employ people, how often do your employees come with I want? You know, and we have to, even in academics, we have to listen to everybody. Now, some of this is good. Some of this is, is well needed. But the individual now has become so centralized in his or her view. Self-identity, self-defined values, I could never, I won't do that. This is who I am. This is how I'm made. I could never believe in a God who. And when I and the proton, I, me, and my lead the conversation, it's all about me and my rights. This has become so subtle, it seduced most of us into thinking we're more important than we are. When Miriam and uh, Aaron attack Moses, it's a chilling story in the wilderness. Basically saying, who made you God? And the Lord comes down and makes Miriam leprous. It's a great story. I doubt there was much conflict after that between Miriam and Moses, and Aaron and Moses. But he said, this is my servant. You see, there's no place for I, me, or my in the Christian life except that I've sinned and I deserve hell and I need to repent. I'm not saying the culture is completely insane. Pretty close. Uh, but we live in a context where it's all about me. It's all about I and where there's value and you have an opinion. You do have a right. You do have the right to say things. But totalitarianism of telling you what you can and can't do and the overreaction of individualism, neither are any good because we're in a fallen system, men and women. So we got to erase that notion and come out as Christians and say, wait, 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 wait. I serve a king, not myself. My first concern should not be my rights, my money, my identity, my fill-in-the-blank. My first and chief concern should be how do I serve my Savior today? And let's be, let's be candid. Most of us have trouble living a day saying, I'm really going to serve Jesus today. And sort of this little annoying appendage out there that, yeah, I want to do my work for the Lord, but I really would like a raise. I'd like to have my own business. I'd like to have a better income. I'd like to fill in the blanks. When, if you and I approached this Christian life from the vantage of, 
I'm waking up today to serve Christ with my all, best I can, behind a computer screen, with numbers, in the medical field, interacting with people, building a business, hiring, firing, evaluating, helping people that are in trouble. I'm going to try to serve Jesus first and foremost. Now you're getting to know the Lord of the Sabbath. Because it's not supposed to be as hard as we make it. He says, I'm God of Sabbath. I came here to give you rest. Rest from your sin condition. Rest from your futility. And I can do anything I want because I'm God. Your role is to respond to me by faith. It's a recalibration. And you know, I need it every day too. That's why I'm reading this thing in 90 days. I don't know why I'm trying to do this in 90 days. Going, I really want to get the big picture in 90 days. I've never done this before. I'm going to kill myself doing it. I'm going to try. It's not the proved point that I did it in 90 days. Some of you could do it in 30 days. That's not, it's not a goal for a goal's sake. It's to try to get a big picture. Is it going to make me more like Jesus? I don't know. But my hope and motive is I see a better view of his story and not get drilled down in details is my tendency. What are you doing to align your heart more toward him than self? You're either going to oppose him or you're going to embrace him. That's the story so far in Mark. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that is true. We thank you that God's Son has come, that grace has come, that Christ fulfilled the law in every detail. His mission is now cast. He must be killed. He will be killed, but he is Lord of Sabbath. He's come to give us rest. Help us to realign, to recalibrate, to do what we need to do. And then would you help us by your grace and mercy and your spirit to change us into what we want to be for you. And we know that you're willing. Help us to be willing as well. In Christ's name, amen.